morning, church. It's great to be with you today. Uh, if you're new or visiting here at Disciples Church, welcome. Look forward to getting to know you. My name is Joshua Kirstein. Privileged to be the preaching pastor here at Disciples Church. Uh, excited to be in this year of our Lord, 2022, and uh, to be back in our sermon series in the letter of 1 John. If you grab your Bibles with me and turn to the letter of 1 John, you'll find it in the back of your Bible. Um, just after Second Peter, just before Jude and Revelation, if you uh, need a Bible uh, to use during the service, we have some in the very back of the room there. It's no problem to jump up and grab one. There's also papers and pens there to take notes. We, it's always my hope and prayer that our time in the Word on Sunday morning would really be a catalyst to your time in the Word throughout the week uh, to grow in God's good truths and all that He's doing in our lives. Um, we return to our uh, passage where we left off last week in First John chapter 3. Uh, the passage in totality that we're looking at here for two weeks is verse 11 through 18. Now, today I'm going to focus on the second part of that, week two of love one another, as we look at verse 14 through 18. So I want to read the passage in its entirety, remind us of where we were last week, and, and then we'll jump right in, in the middle of 14. First John chapter 3. 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love does, abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the wor- world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. God's good word. Picking up in the middle of verse 14, where we left off last week, John says, whoever does not love abides in death. The fruit of not loving, or the evidence of, of one who does not reveal the love of God at work in and through them is one who's abiding in death. When John says, abide in death, he's defining that person's spiritual state, right? They're physically alive, but he's describing their spiritual death. They're spiritually dead because of their sin. Scripture says that they are enslaved to sin apart from Christ. All they do is sin. The word abide means to be fixed, to to continue on course, to endure, to remain. Just as those who belong to Christ abide in Christ in all things, we endure, we remain, we hold fast to Him in all things. He is the vine. We are the branches. We are to abide in Him, Jesus says. Those who do not love, those who hate their brother, hold fast, endure, abide in spiritual death. They remain dead in sin. This was John's point in verse 6 of this chapter. Let me remind you, 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. No one who abides in Christ keeps on practicing sin, is his emphasis there. It's not that we who are in Christ never sin or or never again sin. That perfection will not be our reality until we're brought into glory. Only Jesus was without sin. We are, in Christ, no longer enslaved to sin. 
we're no longer enslaved to only do sin. The power of Christ at work in the believer is conviction and longing for what is righteous, for what glorifies God. This is the good news of our transformation, of our new birth, our salvation, our redemption in Christ. We'll come back to the application of what that looks like in just a little bit. But in particular, no one who keeps on sinning, no one who keeps practicing sin, has seen him or known him. No one who, who is revealing by their, their works, that revealing on the outside what's on the inside. I'm still enslaved to sin. I, I, I'm not belonging to God. I don't, I don't, do, I don't act in faith. So, so what his point is, is they don't know him. They, they don't see him. There's no faith there. We fall short of his standard. Paul said this clearly in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The clear teaching of God's holy word is that all, everyone, has a most terminal reality of enslavement and addiction to sin, which equals spiritual death outside of Christ, those who are outside of Christ. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, our federal head, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. A sobering reality of the condition of mankind. When Adam, our federal head, sinned, his inner nature is transformed by his sin for rebellion, dishonoring God. That's the very... Reality of the very act of, of dishonoring God's command upon him and Eve not to eat of that, of that fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. This brought about spiritual death. Depravity, which would be a seed passed to all mankind. We inherit, just as we inherit certain genetic or physical characteristics from our birth parents, we also inherit our sinful nature from our first parents, passed to us through our birth parents. It's a seed that's in mankind. That at conception, Scripture says, we're conceived in sin. Sin is in us. It's inherit. Original sin is at work. Through Adam, mankind's inherent inclination is to sin. Uh, if you need a reminder of that, just go spend time with a newborn who will sin often. And demands and in inappropriate ways to, to, to get what the flesh wants, right? I mean, we, we don't have to go very long to realize sins at work, and even the smallest child. And surely in us who go on in life, because we prove to be in sin, we practice sin, we do sin, we, we need salvation, we need to be redeemed, we need to be unshackled from our enslavement to our sin, so that we would live for Christ, we would have the power of Christ to honor God. Whoever does not love abides in death. The consequence of one's spiritual deadness in sin, their being given to sin, their relentless practice of selfishness and sin is spiritual death. It's eternal wrath. There is a layer to sin's consequence, though, that is even worse than spiritual death and the wrath of God on those who remain unrepentant for their sin. That terrible consequence is separation from God. It's, it, it's John's very point in verse 6. No one who keeps on sinning has seen him or knows him. We don't know God. We're not reconciled to him. We don't have him. We miss out on the best thing there is of all of life. If you are here today and you have not yet truly submitted your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, understand that sin and its consequences, the separation you have from the Holy God because of it, is your worst problem in life. It's not cancer. It's not poverty. It's not marriage unfaithfulness. It's not relational Drama. It's, it's not injustice. It's not the loss of a lifelong career. It's not public humility. It's not disobedient children. Your worst problem by far is that you are separated from the Holy God because of your sin. You are spiritually dead. And, and so do business with that. 
Don't let that move by. We're often guilty in our flesh of worrying way too much about things that are trivial, things that are temporary, thinking that they are a real problem when they're not. Sin is. Spiritual death is. Consider with me just for a quick moment. The the things that people lose sleep over, the things that cause people to be filled with anxiety and worry, how you look, the state of your health, the loss of a job, the strain or pain of separation from a loved one. These things are really hard. But hear me clearly, they are also temporary in comparison to eternity. Very temporary. Your separation from God because of your sin, if not reconciled by the blood of Jesus and new birth, is for eternity. There is no greater consequence than to abide in death. This is what's behind this powerful statement of John in the second part of verse 14. Whoever does not love the evidence of God's love at work in them, whoever does not love abides in death. The fact that they do not show the love of God to their brother is the evidence of their being dead in sin. He builds on this truth in verse 15. Look with me, 1 John 3.15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That feels like a leap. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Some clarities we need to have. So we read this verse rightly. First, it's not a leap that hate for a brother is equal to murder, the taking of their life. The consequences of those actions is different. But the sin, the problem, is the same. How do we know that? Where do we get that? Jesus himself taught clearly. Matthew 5, 21-22 You have heard that it is said to those of old, You shall not murder. Whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Don't miss John and Jesus' point. The fruit of the spiritual condition of your heart is either hate or love. It goes to work. John's point is that the evidence of a lack of true of the true love of God at work in and through someone means they don't love their brother, they hate their brother. They are selfish and hurtful towards them. Even if that's just in the heart. Now understand, when John says no murderer has eternal life abiding in him, what he's not saying there is that a murderer, a convicted true murderer, cannot be redeemed unto eternal life with God. Why? Because Scripture is also clear to teach that Christ's blood is holy, pure, and able to forgive us our worst sins if if God so wills that it is applied to us and he gives us eyes to see and ears to hear that we would, by faith, repent of our sin and trust ourselves to Jesus and be saved. The worst Christian, never stop praying for the worst around you. The vile. The despicable. We're blessed to have many of those among us. Brothers, sisters in Christ, saved, redeemed, made new. God is good. So he's not saying... They cannot be redeemed. We need to make sure we're reading that right. He's basically saying those who practice murder remain unrepentant, don't have eternal life. They're, they're separated from God because of their sin. What he is saying, let me say it a different way, the person who has hate for his brother, as opposed to love for his brother, proves to be dead in sin, and therefore not alive in Christ or redeemed by Christ, or reconciled to God. This means because they are guilty in sin, they are worthy of eternal death, not eternal life. For John, the absence of love for our Christian brothers and sisters is a sure sign that we do not abide in God, but we abide in death. 
In the context here, we see that to hate your blood-bought brother or sister means to not love them. See with me, church, there is no middle ground. Many will say, I don't hate them. That's, that's too strong. That's not where I'm at. And then dismiss their inactivity of love. But John is pressing, as we'll see in the rest of the passage and even the letter, that if we are not loving our brother and sister in Christ, seeking their good, to the point of even laying down our own lives for them, we are not just not loving them, we are hating them. The possibility of the position of neutrality is a myth, according to Scripture. It's not possible for a true Christian to refuse to love someone God loves and for whom Christ died. We don't have a greater standard than he does. Tracking? God's love at work in us will bring love for our brother or sister. Think about that. And I pray the Holy Spirit goes to work in you in all the ways that he needs to, to convict you unto repentance and motivate you unto what honors the Lord in this area. The love that God has shown us motivates us to love one another. This is John's emphasis in verse 16. Look with me. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. First consider with me the ultimate contrast of the hate of Cain, who murdered his brother, and the love of Christ, who sacrificed himself for his blood-bought brother. Right? In this larger passage, as we focused last week on Cain's hatred and murder. One is self-serving, self-protecting. One is self-sacrificing. Jesus speaks to this so well in his words in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, 11 through 18. Jesus says famously, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Church, the hired hand serves himself. He loves himself. And so he bails at the sign of trouble. Because his, his drive is self-protection. In the end, he cares nothing truly for the sheep. On the other hand, Christ, who is our good shepherd, loves us so much, he willingly lays down his life for us. Christian, does this move you to great gratitude? This is the good news of the gospel. The amazing grace of God and the amazing deep love of God, the sacrificial love of God to save a wretch like me and you. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of the grace and power of God to redeem undeserving sinners to eternal life through Jesus' perfect, sinless life substitutional, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection from the grave. These sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, 
from the eternal wrath they deserved, and they are reconciled to an eternally secure relationship with God. It's the Word of Truth Catechism, question 68. Now, you might be here today for a number of reasons. To know more of what God's Word teaches. Maybe to get to know us here at Disciples Church. See if we're faithful to the things of God. Consider maybe what it looks like to become a committed part of this local family. And if that is you, I I hope that you would feel like family sooner than later as we seek the Lord and and all of what His Word calls and commands us to. The truth is, though, you will never truly be family as long as you remain pridefully the Lord of your own life. God must do a supernatural work in you to bring true and real conviction of your sin, so much so that you openly confess it to God. You you stop putting a mask on it. You stop excusing it. You stop calling it what you think it is. You call it what He clearly says it is according to His Word. Confess it. And you see then your desperate need for a Savior. You're disgusted with your sin and its stain, especially in light of the holiness of God, the standard of God. And so you turn to Jesus to be your Savior. Not just to be your Savior, but to be your Lord. That you trust Him to be the Lord of your life. You no longer are in charge. It is your joy now to no longer call the shots. Your complete joy to belong to Him and serve Him and obey Him the rest of your days. And there's nothing better that can happen to you than this. No circumstance in this life holds a candle to this. God saving you from your sin reconciling you to him now and forever. God has made a way through Jesus. Jesus who willingly gave up his life for his people in love. I pray you would repent and believe and be saved. And if and when you do, then the love of God now is at work in you. And empowering you then to love others in a way you never could before. Especially the brethren, as is our emphasis in this passage. What does this look like? Let's look at our verse again. By this we know love. What what is the love of God? How do we know that we're loved? Jesus laid down his life for us. There is no, we all have been here. Well, we're guilty of looking at our circumstances and then kind of going to God, God, like, where's your love for me in this? And Christian, we need nothing more than to see and remember clearly what the Holy God did through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save us when we were actively His enemy. That is so massive of a love statement to you that nothing will touch it in a lifetime. Not a million other things. And so, naive, uh, selfish, uh, ignorant, even sinful, to turn to God in, in other circumstances and say, God, where's your love for me? He has shown it to us in the most abundant way. We never forget it. We never lose sight of it. And then that love for us would move, would, would go to work. And that's his point. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What does that look like? Well, Jesus gave us great insight in his teaching and in his example In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, 12 through 17, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I've commanded you. Why? So that you will love one another. We are going to see, and you will see in your study of the Holy Scriptures, this call that we love one another in the church, in the, in the universal church, the brothers and sisters in Christ, again and again and again and again. It is a massive and major way the Lord wants our testimony of the gospel to go to work. And so we're going to study it again and again and again, even in this very letter, that we would grow in it, that we repent of how we're falling down or, or missing the mark. We, we would mature in our love for one another. Only in God do we know true love, for God is love. We're going to really spend time with that in a number of weeks when we get to chapter 4. Only out of the overflow of God does the church love one another. See, the source of true love is God, and it's made manifest in Jesus Christ, shown to us a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. John thirteen thirty four. Just as I have loved you, Jesus says, you are to love one another. How did Jesus love us? Well, we've talked about the cross. We'll, we'll return to that because it's massive. It's everything. We need nothing else. But he also did model it for us. Just a few chapters earlier in John 13, 1 through 15, just even moments before he said this in verse 34, uh, We see Jesus wash the disciples' feet. The master, the leader, puts on a towel, takes on the role of the servant, the lowest slave. Vile, disgusting, adult feet of grown men in a day and age that you and I don't really have a clear understanding of just how nasty that task was. Wraps himself in a towel and he washes clean their feet, each of them. And then he says in John 13, 14 through 15, If I, then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And then in verse 34, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So what it looks like to love one another. That we would sacrifice, we would go low, serving, caring for one another. But further, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ. What is our mind in Jesus Christ? He was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus has so loved us. He, he got low in sacrificial love, not just in taking on flesh, that was a huge act of sacrificial love to accommodate, to lower himself. Take on the form of a servant. He served us, didn't he? I mean... We see this model and is taking on a towel and washing the feet of his brothers. But further, it says here, he went to the cross. He 
He was murdered. He was tortured. Took on the sin, the wrath that our sin deserved. And therefore, we who belong to him, we who know the love of God that's been shown to us in Christ, we then go low, get low, in sacrificial love for one another. When John says in our verse, 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He's saying the pattern of love to be followed is clear, to love like Jesus has loved. And how does his pattern of love continue and ultimately come to its peak in dying for us? John's emphasis that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In many ways, we could say then it should not be uncommon that we Christians would be ready, joyful to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. See, we look at like the military and we see that not as uncommon for them. The world should look at the church and see it all the more in us. And so one of our real questions before us is is that who you are I am is that who we are are we ready that it would be my joy to lay down my life for my brother or sister in Christ and that can't just be like a a good idea like a, a great ideal but there's a readiness to wake up and I'm ready to die today to honor the Lord. In many ways, that's what Jesus taught the Christian life. These days, these short days, in this foreign land now, we belong to a different kingdom in Christ as sojourners, as exiles, that, that we are to take up our cross, the instrument of torture, every day to follow Him. We, we spent time with that last week, what it is to join Christ in His sufferings. This is what Scripture teaches us Christian life is and it is so different than the world's normal life and in that then is this powerful testimony I want to impart this to you before we move on church don't miss that this is a commandment this isn't a recommendation that some of you might consider Not all of us are called to the mission field, the foreign mission field. We see that call on those individuals as very special and very costly. There needs to be a reality of Christianity lived out in us daily, here, now, that I think biblically does not look very different in its costliness to the work of the missionaries and what they're going to go do. I think when we really begin to get this, we need to see a lot less of the easy street that we have and know, and that our sacrificial living, our taking up our cross daily living, would go to work. I, I needed that understanding in early 2014 when I for years had told my wife we have three children and a big family in this church I was just a year or two into being named the new preaching pastor and after a long season of transition and then God through his word really knocked me down knocked me over at what taking up our cross daily, at what sacrificial love really looks like. And I confess to Jennifer, we can do a lot more. And growing over the years of what it looks like to, to be busy, to, to be gospel ministry minded, that we would very normally go to bed very tired. Not just because we work a strenuous job or 
whatever some of those common things that make us tired would be, but because we really are trying to really live every moment of every day for the kingdom. So I continue to ask the Lord, Lord, show me what that is. And I want to, I want to keep growing in that. I, I ask you to consider the commandment of the Lord. What does that look like in your life? Take up your cross. Die to him. If you are in sin because you're choosing selfishness instead of love, you're choosing laziness instead of love, costly love, pride instead of costly love, hate instead of costly love. Church, Jesus is your Lord. The Bible is your authority. This is his command that you are to love God and love others with your day. This is the great commandment on us. So let's obey him. Let's let the Holy Spirit convict us each and and take that next step, whatever that might be for each of us, unto these things. May it be so, by his grace, for his glory. Look with me at verse 17 and 18 and how this practically additionally goes to work in our lives. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is not new, this charge to be good stewards of what God's entrusted to us, to see that everything we have ultimately belongs to him, right? That we would definitely be moving away from idolatry, where we become like Gollum, my precious, and like we, it's idolatry, and we, it just consumes us, and we live for stuff, we live for temporary identity. Know that in Christ, we're moving past that, but going then further to be open-handed with it and ready to say, Lord, it's yours. If I live a simpler life, if this thing I've worked hard for thinking it's going to be great, i got to give it away, so be it. And that's not new. We see this really throughout Scripture. Uh, let me just give you a taste. Go old school, Old Testament with me. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 10. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord has given, your God has given to you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say the seventh year, the seventh the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. Verse ten you shall give to him freely. And your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Most simply and practically, John is saying, if you have the means and the opportunity, and yet selfishly refuse to help your brother who is in need, then God's love does not abide in you. The opposite way to consider this truth is if God's love abides in you, then you will act in love towards your brethren. There's so many other instructions in Scripture that emphasize this. Uh, one that continually resonates with me is Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17-19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, before you turn, tune out the rest of my reading of this little passage, when he says, as for the rich, some of you are already like, oh, well, that's not me. I mean, uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous or whatever, uh, these people around me have all this. That's not me. No, it is you. You, you live in America. You live in California. You, you know wealth and convenience as compared to the rest of the world that is super wealthy. How do I know that? Because just about all of you that I know, live in insulated dwellings where you can walk to a number of places and turn on a source of water that's convenient that you can drink. You don't, are not totally relying on public transportation. Most of you have your own vehicle to get you around, if not many. 
Your food is is in plethora. Our, Our homeless are fed better than most of the world. We are very rich, right? We are very blessed with way more than we deserve. So, yes, this is talking to us, okay? Just bring you all back. All right, here we go. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who provides us with everything to enjoy. Christian, is your hope in your stuff or your status, or is it on the Lord? That if it all was taken away, in all the simplicity of poverty or homelessness, you would feel stupid rich in God. He is the prize above all prizes, church. Is your hope in stuff or status, or is it in the Lord? Your answer to that is truly revealing. May it be a great point of refinement and sanctification in each of our lives. He says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. That what God's entrusted to us is a way he set the table for us then to do his work. What is generous? I've always said to, to, to figure that out, we just look to Christ, who gave generously, sacrificially. We could also look to the early disciples, the early church. They did this well. We know that because of the testimony about them. Acts chapter 2, 44 through 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. There's this sweet unity and camaraderie and of what it meant to be the brethren, the family of God. And, and they understood, like, my stuff's not just for my family, not just my blood family. Why? Because I'm now a part of this family, God's family. And so my stuff's yours. Your stuff's mine. We, we're here to hold each other up. When, we, when you mourn, we mourn. When you celebrate, we celebrate. We're in this together. Your sin doesn't just affect you, Christian. It affects all of us. And when you're growing and maturing in the Lord, what a sweet blessing that is to all of us as well. The love of God at work in the early church's sacrificial love for one another to take their goods, to to sell those things so they could really love each other and care for each other and do what was needed. Uh, There's many wonderful testimonies of how that's happening here. Next week at our annual meeting, we'll take a moment to really celebrate that. Just as we look to the early church and see their sacrificial love, we need to realize that God will cause others to look at us. Not so they say, in our love for each other, not so they say, wow, Disciples Church, man, that, they, that, that's legit. They got it. Not praise to disciples, not praise to you or me, but so that they would say, look at God. Look at his work through his people, his love at work through them. This is Jesus' point in Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16, that we are to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who's in heaven. I mean, is this not the goal in all we do, Christian? Why God woke you up today is that he would be glorified in how you live your life. That the glory of God would be known and praised. Now when evaluating, how do I know that I'm loving the brethren and giving to them sacrificially? 
I, I like to say sacrifice or generosity is measured by the fact that it costs you something. Meaning, it's not out of your abundance. You, you give of this like extra. No, no, your life now looks different. Cost you something. You don't do something. You don't enjoy something. You don't have something because of the cost of that sacrificial giving. Changes the way you live your life. You feel it. And he says in verse 16, in this we're storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. Holding rightly and open-handedly that which is temporary, that, that which is not life, to grab hold of that which is truly life. The Lord, the treasure of all treasures, Jesus taught, emphasized, this huge point in all of his teaching that all we need to enjoy God forever is Jesus. He's the door. He's the way, the truth, the life, as we sang earlier. And we don't need our work, our accomplishments, our other stuff to make it, to be happy, to be successful. There's, there's a deception in that. There's a constant temptation in that. To overgrip, over pursue. Famous teaching in Matthew 7, 13 through 14. It says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Why is the road to life narrow? He says, maybe because of the few who are on that road. But, but I, I often think about the fact that the doorway is narrow because I don't need to carry all the stuff that I once thought was important through it. I only need Jesus. I love in that classic hymn, I'll save that. I have it queued up in a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. I often do this with you second hour. Why is the road to eternal destruction wide? Because all that stuff has to fit unto damnation. All the idols of our hearts, all the things we chase that we thought would give us life, straight to hell. We pack it, we worship it, we cling to it, straight to hell. Why is it hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God? Because he, he wants to have his own kingdom. He doesn't want to give it up. He doesn't want to be generous, living for God's glory and not his own. And so here's the real test. Many of us are guilty of having our arms so full of the world and all that we're chasing, and we want more and more of it, that we really have very little time to, to serve sacrificially, to love others, to to be discipled and to disciple. For many, our arms are so full of the world that we're like the rich young ruler. In the end, we don't really love God. We see God as the means to an end. We can't fathom the idea of giving up our stuff. The rich young ruler walked away. Jesus tested the true state of his heart. Sell your stuff and then come follow me. And he wouldn't do it. Because at the end of the day, he didn't want God. He Jesus was showing him. And all we need is the Lord, but a, a true faith that dies to self to live to him does that. It dies to self. Everything about what I was pursuing changes. Praise God that Jesus is the door to eternal life. And it's not by my deeds that I'm saved. Amen? That all we need is Jesus alone. Nothing else in my hands I bring is that historic lyric. When we get this, when we grow in sanctification in this, 
the love of God at work in us, we will be quicker and quicker, better and better, prepared to give away what we have in sacrificial love, especially for one another. And again, let me remind you, that the emphasis here of John is on sacrificial love for the brethren, love for one another, the brothers and sisters in Christ. Specifically, that's who we're talking about. While there is biblical charge to love others, love your neighbor, love the stranger, love your enemy, the focus here is on our love for one another. So while you can be generous with the stranger on the corner or your unbelieving neighbor in a way that honors God and shines bright the light of Christ, The generous sharing of our stuff here, the charge here that Jesus wants to go on display is for the brethren of Christ. James spoke specifically this way. James 2, 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Oh, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James jumps right into an example of a person who claims faith and is even willing to speak in spiritual ways towards another, but doesn't live out the transformation of Christ at work in them. James' point here is to say true faith will show fruit of the Spirit. It will produce a lifestyle of sacrificial love and work that you didn't do prior to being saved. True faith will find its way to action. It will show the evidence of being born again by God. So what does that look like for you? It, it looks different for each of us in the body, in the unique ways that God has gifted us and equipped us to go to work and to use our gifts and our talents to serve Him. It, it looks uniquely different for the elders than it does for the sheep, shepherds and the sheep, um, in, in the prayer and the preaching and, and the counseling that we do day and night, in the ways that unfolds in our week, and the love, that the cost to our families, to our lives for that. And then in the equipping of the saints, the way it looks in your life is unique to how it goes to work and in showing up and being boots on the ground to, 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 to live that out, to be the body for each other. If a person's belief shows no real evidence of spiritual new birth, regeneration, which then produces the fruit of the Spirit, then what they have is not saving faith. It's good for nothing. It's superficial. It's religious. It's because those whom Christ takes hold of and makes new and the Spirit indwells will produce the fruit of the Spirit. Our faith in God means we will live for Him and love others sacrificially, selflessly. This is Jesus' sobering point. In Matthew 25, 41-46, he says to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will say, answering to them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The Word of God is clear to say again and again that the person who claims faith in God but does not bear the fruit of the Spirit in word and deed is not saved. That's that's why Jesus very clearly says, you're going to where the devil's going. They don't know God. They're not reconciled to Him. The true evidence of saving faith is faith that goes to work in good deeds. And honor. What honors God and is sacrificial to others. And so, circling back to verse 17. 
1 John 3.17, to answer John's rhetorical question, see that as it is, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Question. Answer. It doesn't. That's his point. The complete opposite of this is the love of God at work in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for undeserving sinners like you and me. Seen in famous declarations like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John will make this point later in this letter, our letter, 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. How? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Praise God for his love shown to us in Christ. Oh, how he loves us. See and savor it all the time. Don't be confounded by your circumstances to ever question the deep and eternal love that God has for you. Once again, verse 18, with the elder shepherd's affection for the beloved with whom he's been charged to love and lead, he starts, verse 18, by addressing them as little children. If you're new or just joining us, he's not belittling them. He's an authority figure. That's where the reference to children comes from, over them. And, and their family. He loves them. This is an affectionate statement by John for his brethren. 1 John three eighteen, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. In this last pastoral plea of this section of the letter, John says to the brethren, Our love has to be more than felt or even communicated with words. Those words need to find their way to action. It is too often too easy to just feel sentiment and, or affection for another. And we count it as good. Yeah, I feel that way towards these people. Likewise, it, it's often easy to even just say, I love you. Communicate your love. But what can be more sparse and not enough is to find ways to live out that love for one another with action. To live it out and not just proclaim that we love them. Did you notice John 3.16? This is how God loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave. I can't help but think of the Lord's call to action in Matthew 7, 26 and 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, does not act, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Church, you can't just hear, you can't just feel, you got to act. The love of God will find its way into action. John's words, already spoken in chapter 2, verse 28, are helpful here. 1 John 2, 28, again, now, little children, he says, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The Lord's coming to get us. Amen? In the meantime, he's commanded us to love God and to love others. That's the great commandment. Specifically here today, to love one another. Christian, do you hear Christ's commands on you and then just kind of wink at them? Or do you submit to them by abiding in God in such a way the love of God goes to work through you? In such a way that you're living out the love of God in your deeds and in truth 
in such a way that you have no reason to shrink back at his coming. You know what's going to make you want to shrink back? I haven't been doing anything. So let's, let's do. Let's act. Let's live. Let's wake up every day and honor him in these ways. Finally, to begin to wrap up, John says that we are to love one another in truth at the end of verse 18. Did you notice that? Why is that so important? And the simple answer is something I think we often overlook because in our flesh we're guilty of breaking it all the time. It's not loving to lie. Your flesh at times may convince you, oh, I'm going to like help this person by bending this. No. That's your flesh. Lying is sinful. It's typically aimed to serve yourself, even though sometimes you don't have that in view. We must love in truth because it is the way we are sure to truly love them with God's love, which is true. And not to love ourselves. Paul says in Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. In other words, let love be truthful. The Greek can be translated, let love be without hypocrisy. To pretend to be a certain way, that's not true. We are to love each other honestly. We are to trust God by living in the truth and not trying to bend it according to what we think is best. Paul said it well in his letter to the Corinthian church in defining love, that famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 6 says, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. So let me ask you to take inventory for a moment. For those you claim to love. Are you loving them in truth? Or is there sin or their lies that you're allowing to exist with one another? If that's happening, you're not loving them. Something else. Instead, you've figured out a way to get comfortable in a bed of half-truths, lies, that you're convinced are better. And I just want to love you enough to say, see the deception of the flesh in that. See that that's not the love of God at work in you. God's love is true. It's pure. It's not self-serving. And it's willing to love in truth, even if it's costly. You would say, well, if I love in truth, it could blow it up. But even if it's costly, we love in truth. What about... Inventory, take some inventory for those that you are not loving of the brethren that you are commanded to love, clearly. Hear these last two verses again. Let them really go to work. 1 John 3, 17-18 If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against him or her, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love the world, I'm sorry, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If we belong to Christ, we will love with more than just words or feelings. We will love with deeds and love in truth. This is the love of God at work in and through us. And everything else is counterfeit. I pray you would really do business with the conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning for you. That we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. That this would be a, a cause for real refinement, and reformation, revolution among the body that is Disciples Church and 
the brethren that is the universal church. These truths would, would move us. We would speak these truths to those who, who are claiming to love Jesus but have hate for another. I heard testimony of that this week. How is this person not held accountable by the church? How does this, how is this even be? That situation is another church. We'd be dealing with it here. I, I actually might go deal with it there. Pray for that. Because that's love and truth. Right? This love will be our testimony to a watching world. A deep, true, God-glorifying love for one another. Sacrificial love. And this love at work will bind us together in Christ. No matter what we face, bring it on. No matter what the enemy wants to throw at us. May it be so. I'm excited. By his grace, for his glory. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time in your holy word. Uh, Thank you for your provision and the uniqueness of my week to have the time to diligently pray and prepare to effort to faithfully exegete and exposit your, your scriptures, your word for us. I pray that you would really go to work in the hearing and that that work then, when done according to your will, would not remain good words that are heard, but uh, actions that are lived out. Repentance that is confessed and acted upon. For some, their point of action that they are desperate for is not how they're loving others, for they're still spiritually dead. They need new life. Do your work, Lord, to give eyes to hear and eyes to see and ears to hear. Do your work, Lord, to bring real conviction for sin and and genuine trust to Jesus as Lord and Savior unto salvation, unto knowing the love that you've shown us and then living it out in a way we never could on our own. I'm excited about the testimony of what this means for our church and those who would hear it beyond how it goes to work in our disciple-making of the generations to come. For your glory, Lord, oh God, do your work in us and hear us now as we exalt your name and prepare to go and live out these truths that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.